This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, Corey Nathan, and it is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And remember to subscribe or follow whichever app you're on. And, and definitely leave us, I've been talking about leaving not just a rating, but write a review. It really does help us, um, especially the ones on Apple. It just changes the algorithm somehow. I don't know that magic sauce, but uh, leaving a review is good. It's also encouraging to see a lot of the reviews that have become, been coming in. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you, for you to find the Apple uh, podcast, our page on there. Just scroll down a few episodes and you'll see it. Um, everything, all of it, the follows, the reviews, engaging, hearing what you think online, it all helps to get the word out so more folks can participate in these kinds of conversations, uh, like the one we're having today with Nancy French. I am so, I got to tell you, I am so excited about this interview. I usually don't say that. I usually don't like break character or whatever, but like, I really am, I genuinely am. So Nancy French, for, for folks, uh, if you don't know, you should. You're late to the party, the after party, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> Nancy French is a five-time New York Times bestselling author, essayist, investigative journalist, very influential on me. I, I was just telling um, Nancy offline that um, her piece on Canna Cook Camps, which hopefully we'll get to talk about a little bit today, was very influential uh, for me. It's when I was first introduced to her work, and I, it's been a gift, uh, just um, this wonderful, wonderful gift. Uh, Nancy's a storyteller. Uh, she was a storyteller at The Moth. Um, she's published op-eds and articles in the Washington Post, USA Today, Time, and so many other publications. Her, as I mentioned, her investigative journalism into um, abuse at Kanika camps appeared on the front page of USA Today. Nancy is also a co-author at The After Party, which you discussed a couple of weeks ago with Curtis Chang. And she's the author of the new memoir, Ghosted, which we'll discuss today. But before we start, I, I, we get, we're gonna get into all of that, but I have a very important, very serious question to ask. All right. You said toward the end of the book that you have three kids and two dogs. So are Mrs. Featherbottom and Johann Sebastian no longer with us? Okay, so <laughs> they're, they're harder to keep alive than goldfish. Um, and when we moved from Columbia to, to Franklin, I took all of our remaining uh, chickens to my friend, and she's an amazing chicken person, and they're still kicking, at least some of them are. All right, it's that's, good. that's good. It's been a while, yeah. Yeah. Um, so a more serious note, I, I was fascinated that toward the end of the book, you started, um, you shared that you were interviewing your parents. Are we going to see a book on your parents and what your family's history up on the mountain was? And No, I have that. And I just self-published it and did not make it available just because I was wanting to sort of protect their story. But it was such a beautiful experience to hear, to hear all of their stories and to uh, be able to sit with them and just ask them anything it was just really lovely but we'll we'll keep but they were they were very unedited and i think it's probably better to keep all the <laughs> stuff a little bit uh you know was secret. there so i it sounds like you don't want to share too much was there anything surprising uh especially surprising that uh, you, you you could share you know my my dad, my grandfather was a coal miner. Um, my dad, you know, worked with him in the coal mines. And just his description of life back then, the violence, the poverty, it was really interesting. It gave me an insight as to like why they reacted to things they do or didn't react to things the way they did. 
And it helped me get to know them. It was like I had, for the first time in my life, real honest conversations with them. Yeah. And it was almost too late, but they already have been moved to assisted living. And, you know, you just don't know how long you have with uh, your parents. And so I was very glad that I had the courage to sort of, you know, talk to them about all of this. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed digging a little bit deeper into our family and my ancestry. We've talked a lot on this show about the part of my family that's from uh, what's now Ukraine. Uh, at the time, it was part of the Russian Empire. But there's another part of my family. Somebody dug up the 1860 census. So part of the Nathans have been here for quite some time. And um, a bunch of people in this uh, tenement basically were accounted for. And the they list the professions. Uh, and it was like, this Nathan was a shopkeeper. That Nathan was a rabbi or a minister or whatever they called it. Um, and then one of the Nathans, I forgot the exact word, but it was like rapscallion. <laughs> Like his actual profession was like thief or rapscallion. It was like some colorful word to say that. He amazing. Was, yeah, it was I'm going to be one of those. <laughs> you know, do they like hand out badges for rapscallion? Like you earned your <laughs> rapscallion award. Um, <laughs> so one of the badges you could definitely wear is for ghostwriter. When I was reading about your process, it, it seems like being a ghostwriter would be a lot like being a method actor, like the way that you have to almost inhabit that your subject or uh, an actor would inhabit a character to see the world through their eyes. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I would sort of take on their persona while I was writing the book. So, for example, I was writing a book for Bob Fu, who is a Chinese political dissident. And in the chapter, he was imprisoned in a Chinese place for sharing the gospel. And um, I you know, I felt in my soul that I was in prison for the week it took me to write the chapter. Um, so it was just very strange to sort of become like connected to these people in such a way that I could know what they were going to re react, how they would react or what they would say and what kind of car they drive and what their seventh grade teacher told them about their art project. You know, like it's just crazy. I love it. Yeah. I guess now that I think about it, one of the differences, though, is that you are an actor can separate themselves because you're just playing a character, you're playing Iago, you're playing a villain, you know, you're just playing at it in order to tell the larger story, but you're actually communicating something in nonfiction. So I was, I was fascinated to read through what you were grappling with as you were, as the chasm between you and some of your clients was coming more clearly. How did you, how long did it take you to finally say, I, to, to develop um, specific boundaries, if you will, or specific lines that you just wouldn't cross? And how hard was that for you? The moment I decided that I needed to do something else was when I was at a MAGA rally. Mm. And that was two weeks after David had almost run for president. My husband, David, is a New York Times columnist. He's a Harvard Law grad. He uh, was deployed to Iraq. He earned bronze stars. He's a freaking beast. But there was a brief moment in 2016 where his name was floated as a possible presidential candidate. And that was sort of awkward because we were outed as never Trumpers. We already were. Yeah. But, um, you know, I was still writing for all of these Trump supporting uh, candidates. I mean, Trump supporting clients and they were lovely and I really loved them, but I disagreed with that. And at one point I was contractually obligated to finish a book and I was at a MAGA rally and I was in the journalist section and people were coming up and 
you know, yelling at us and spittle was coming out of their mouth. And I, and then someone came up to me and they were like, hi, do you want to get a, a photo with Donald Trump? You can have this for your grandchildren. <laughs> I was like, absolutely not. I am in the wrong place. There's been a horrible mistake. Yeah. Uh, and so that's when I decided I had to do something different. You know, you just reminded me of a moment that when your family was moving at when you were a kid um, and your mother got really uh, horrified and remembered that your granddad's KKK, uh, the, the box that had his KKK robe was there. I, it makes me wonder like guys who friends of mine, they're good people, you know, I'm still friends with a bunch of guys who support Donald Trump. Not that I'm uh, directly associating being a member of the KKK with supporting Donald Trump, but it makes me wonder about our grandkids. What, you know, if you took your picture with Donald Trump or if, it, you know, my friends who are, you know, avid supporters and even take on that that kind of Trumpist uh, persona in their political engagement, I wonder how our grandkids and our great grandkids are going to have to account for that. Um, or is that fair? Is, it's not maybe it's not fair to make that character, that uh, association. No, that's exactly what I thought. He said grandkids. And I was like, actually, I have a black daughter. I will have black grand grandchildren. I will pass on this opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, he went off and got his photo and everything was fine. And I finished the book for my client, but it was awkward um, because for a while I was writing exclusively for GOP politicians. And then I also ditched my toe in the pure world of Hollywood and entertainment. Um, and so I've written a lot of different books, but the, the only problem that I had was when I felt like I couldn't morally continue, you know, writing what I was writing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciated your candor. You know, let me put that on pause because I have a lot of questions about about your political engagement and your writing. I, I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you about your artwork. Uh the pieces that I've seen remind me, they remind me of like a dream in that you remember impressions and colors and movement, but like specifics are evasive and fleeting. You know what I mean? Like, so mm -hmm. I, what I was curious about though, it, it's, I, I'm really taken by it, but I, I was curious, like now having read your story, like I was curious how you got there. You know, because I read about like the 10 year old Nancy, for lack of a better word, was like pretty feral. <laughs> is, that, yes. is that fair? Like, how do you get from 10 year old feral Nancy to like brilliant artist, brilliant writer Nancy? I was so curious about that that journey. Oh, I'm so feral. I'm still feral. I haven't dropped it. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I've just had a crazy life. I'm a college dropout. So I. it's not like I was educated out of my upbringing. I had a great you know, I love the, I love all the people who, you know, helped raise me, you know, my, my parents, my family, I love my hometown. I love all of it. Um, I'm not sophisticated at all. I, I'm not, I, you know, like I, I cheated my way through high school and I dropped out of college three times. And so I haven't even read books. I've probably written 30, but I'm not well read. And so I decided about um, a, a while back that I was going to solve that by reading every Pulitzer Prize winning novel uh, written since I was born. Oh. And so I've been reading, I've been reading everything and I, uh, I do feel much smarter. Um, I feel a little bit, uh, it, they weren't uh, necessarily page turners. I do not necessarily recommend uh, that this is, you know, the path for a lot of people, but it, it, Helped me a lot, um, but I'm just, I'm the same person I was when I was 10. I don't feel any different and I'm definitely, I'm still feral.
<laughs> That's awesome. Well, for what it's worth, I dropped out of college too, but I only did it once. So you like perfected the art. <laughs> I'm ambitious. I may drop out of more. Yeah, go for it. You know, just like uh, get your reps in. <laughs> Before we move on, I wanted to tell you about something else that's important. Money, <laughs> uh, specifically your money. In all seriousness, I wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend, George Meza. George runs Meza Wealth Management. And with George, it's not just about money. It's about helping us manage our present and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me, he knows my family, and I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on and I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team, all their expertise and all their integrity. And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which, by the way, could change from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Meza and Meza Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mezawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com, www.mezawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. And now, back to our show. Going from ghostwriter to writing your own memoir, um, how, how much of a how, how, what was it like shifting gears and writing your own story? It was so emotionally laborious. I can write books very quickly. I will not tell you which one, but I wrote one New York Times bestseller in 24 days. Oh, wow. So I am, alacrity is my spiritual gift. Um, but when I wrote mine, it was like, so emotional and difficult. And I struggled over every syllable and every word. And I'm very thankful that uh, for the process, but it was very difficult. I'm so thankful that I have the book. I'm so thankful that it's coming out soon and I'm excited about it, yeah. but, and I'm very proud of it. It was, I don't think I could have done it had I not done all of the other books um, because I learned a lot about technique and stuff, but yeah. man, cause you have to be very, honest in a memoir. And sometimes it's hard to be honest with yourself, let alone the reader. Yeah. You know, I would imagine one of the hardest chapters to write was the one about Conrad. Uh, but what struck me about that chapter, number one, it was heart wrenching uh, to get through. Uh, but also there was something about your voice in that chapter with, that was the voice of a junior high school girl. So I wasn't sure if that was your, if that was came naturally to you, you were trying to do that. Um, but how hard was it uh, to write about all that stuff. And how'd you get, how'd you get through it? You know, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm not sure. It was like, uh, I think probably I just tried to tell it. I, I already had the Washington post article that I wrote in 2016 that sort of, you know, that was the first time I wrote about it. That was the most difficult. So in this one, I was trying to just convey the confusion that a person feels when a uh, spiritual leader is manipulating them for evil. 
Um, and also like, I wanted to talk about how you feel, cause it's not like, you know, that they're manipulating you. You feel like you're falling in love or, you know, whatever. And you're just a kid. So you don't, I just didn't know. And so I wanted to write from that ignorance. Yeah. That, that was one of the things that I was having trouble understanding. You did bring it full circle by the end of the book, but I was having trouble understanding the shame. Like you talked a lot about the shame and the guilt that you felt. Um, I, but I, I guess I still, it's hard. Can you, can you walk through that if, if you want to, um, why someone who is on the, like, is the abused would feel shame and, and guilt? Um, when you grow up in fundamentalist churches and probably maybe all churches, um, you always receive this instruction about women, about girls being modest, about not attracting the attention of men, about not being pretty or, you know, things like that. And, and it's still prevalent today. You can still hear it and see it. But they always put the onus, basically, the sexual purity culture puts the onus on the woman to prevent anything from happening. When you're a kid and you can't prevent anything from happening, that puts you in a in a quandary. Additionally, they tell you over and over and over and over that you are pure. And if you are ever defiled, no one will want you. Mm. And so if you make the worst decision of your life when you're 12, it's a downhill from there. And so it just feels really weird. So you can't, it's like, it's, it's not like I was super smart or spiritually, you know, like, like wise. I didn't know any of this. I didn't know about sexual abuse. I didn't know what that was. Um, so, you know, you're, it's not like you can think your way out of it. Dan Allender has, um, amazing writings about what happens when you're physically abused and, and sexually abused and spiritually abused. And it just fills you with shame so that it takes people so long to actually come out as an, a victim. It, you know, some studies say that if you were a victim of a pedophile, you don't come out until you're 45, which was about, you know, when I came out to talk about it. And so this, this pattern is really, really insidious because you can't tell what's happening because people don't want to talk about it because it's so humiliating. Additionally, you don't want anyone to think about you sexually, like you're just a person and all of a sudden you're like, you know, like it's just not polite or something, you know? So like you're, I don't know if this is Southern or just evangelical culture, but it's very difficult to say um, that you were abused and it's different from physical abuse. So like if Conrad had hit me in the face, I would have told my parents, right? Um, but if it's a sexual abuse, you're filled with shame because there is stuff that happens physiologically and emotionally that connects you to a person. And when you're connected to that person, it's just sort of hard to, to use your voice and to tell people. I really wish I'd, well, I was going to say, I wish I told people back then what had happened, but I don't think anything would have changed. He's, you know, still out there yeah. with access to children. Well, one of the things I was, uh, frankly, I was getting pissed about was just reading about the reactions of all different kinds of people. Like when your parents read um, J uh, Jacob's letters and they found out, um, or when you went to that principal and the principals and the principal had all that information and the principal's reaction to you or your, your, your pastor. That, and that's the, the insidious thing about it. When you're, you're the pastor that you hook, that you, um, you called and he was still alive at that time. I, I don't know if he's still alive now, but um, his reaction was, but Conrad can do a lot of good. 
right? Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to, and I see that too. Like, uh, I, you know, I see that anyway. Um, I, so when you walked out of that school and you confronted the principal where Conrad was working as a freaking girls volleyball coach, um, and a teacher and you walked out, um, I would have imagined you taking your, like, um, I don't know, Rocky up the stairs in, you know, moment, like, yeah, I did it kind of a thing. Um, but you had a very different reaction uh, when uh, you were walking well, out of that school. Yeah, I didn't succeed at all. They didn't believe me. They had contempt for me. They were incredulous. They ignored me. And they had no no plan to do anything different, you know, like he was working there. And so I walked out and they were, it was just so humiliating the way that they treated me and I'm grown. So imagine asking like a 12 year old victim to speak out when I'm a grown woman and I spoke out and it demolished me emotionally. I walked out into the parking lot and just bawled. I was so humiliated. It's just so embarrassing. Like I really wish I never had to talk about it. I wish none of this had ever happened, but you know, like once you can read, like it was just hard for me to realize that I had done nothing wrong, that I had been manipulated by obviously a pastor, a 12 year old is not someone who gives consent. I mean, obviously it sounds so dumb to even think the way I thought at the time or not dumb, but like, you know, naive, but you're supposed to be naive when you're a kid. Yeah. Was when you met David, um, by the way, I love that story. So um, I think I fell in love with David the way you were telling that story. So, um, but when you, that that three weeks, there was some serious stuff. You you were living a lot of life in that three weeks. Um, was that the first time that someone talked to you in a way that um, opened your eyes to the possibility that it wasn't your fault? You know, we talked about it. I told him about it during that three weeks, but we didn't really talk about it until David was thinking about running for president. <laughs> and I don't think he understood how much shame I had mm. because I, because it's not something that you want to talk about or think about. And it was like, oh, this thing happened. And oh, that's terrible. And then in 2016, when I was being vetted, our family was being vetted for a possible campaign. I kept thinking, well, what if this guy speaks out and said he was my boyfriend or whatever, even though he was grown? And when I was being in that vetting process, the person doing it was like, he's not going to come out and admit that he was a pedophile and committed a crime. And I was like, oh, this is very clear to other people. But what happens is you keep all of this in your own self. And so you don't ever get it out so that other people can provide counsel. Yeah. So during that uh, presidential contemplation slash terror, um, <laughs> David, David and I had had a conversation about it. And he was like, you are not to blame for this. What are you talking about? You know, it was like very sweet. It yeah. was a very memorable, sweet moment, very healing. Yeah. By the way, I do love that one uh, supporter, the the G string clad supporter, <laughs> when you are outside of the apartment. And anyway, uh, read the book. There's a lot of really uh, fun uh, little nuggets in there. But uh, <laughs> on a serious note, the um, I couldn't take I couldn't help but notice that the book is published by Zondervan. And when I, re I it it reminded me I've read like a lot of my Ravi books were Zondervan. Um, but I, it just made me wonder, not that you'd have to answer this, you've already like lived a life, you know, uh, th that uh, and had to put up with so much.
but I can't help but wonder like, what do we do with that? What does a publisher do with, you know, an author that they've published who turned out to be a serial predator? What do we do when our heroes, when our leaders, it turns out, are are, um, sexual? Or how do we respond as a church when confronted with this reality? You know, and there have been a lot of bad. I live in Santa Cruz Valley where Masters College is. You know, Johnny Mack, John MacArthur did not respond too well when one of his parishioners came up and he said, go back to your husband. Uh, you know, the, the dude's in jail now, but she had to confess her sins in front of in front of the church. You know, that's certainly not the way to do it. But how how do we do it better? How do we do it in a healthier way out of out of respect for um, folks who've had to been through torture and torment already um and how do we how do we do it better as a church body how do we do it better as just as a even outside the church as a community um i i'm not expecting you to answer that but those are the questions that are rattling around in my brain if you can respond to it if you like well i mean i don't pretend to know how institutions should all respond to various incidents which might vary but I think the main thing that I've seen, because I, as an investigative journalist, I looked into the abuse at Canicut camp. So that's one institution I know about. And it would be nice, number one, if the institution, and I'm speaking of Canicut, would admit yeah. that what I've written is true. Mm. Um, and every syllable of it is true um, because they, you know, threatened me legally and I didn't, I didn't uh, change anything and and they never came after me. But they, you know, they just lie. So number one, if you could just tell the truth. Number two, if you could just take responsibility that for anything that you've done, any lack of oversight, any lack of training, any lack of rule following, like whatever that is, and then provide some sort of like, um, like consideration for the the victims in terms of providing counseling services that are authentic and not related to the institution, releasing people from NDAs if those had been used um, you know, there's just a lot of things that you can do that's very basic. It's it's common courtesy. But um, the main thing is that institutions have to quit idolizing their brand um, because, you know, like Canicott Camps, for example, um, was created probably to glorify God. And then at some point, their main focus became brand management. Mm. So when that when that focus changes, as Curtis Chang, who's a theo, uh, theologian, said, it is idolatrous because they used to be focused toward God and now they're focused toward their brand. Well, what is the one thing that idols demand? The sacrifice of children and women. And so you see it over and over and over. And when you can see it spiritually and you can see that this is like actually sinful, like it's evil the way that Canacock has responded to just my reporting, let alone to the victims. Yeah. Uh, when you can identify it as evil, that's a huge step. People don't want to do that because they have nostalgia, because they like living out in the, you know, wooded uh, areas in Branson for their kids. They want them to be away from technology. So they just ignore all of the stuff. Yeah. So, People need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. You can say, I had a great time at Canacock, and Canacock has, for some reason, attracted a lot of pedophiles, and hundreds of people have been raped. Uh, it's not hard to do. You can say it. You can say both things. And then then you can decide, like, okay, no, what do we do now? So what they're doing now is lying and obscuring. So I know you don't do that. 
that's not that's that's not uh, that's not behind door one, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That's um. But also on a personal level, uh, you described one of the reactions you got. Uh, somebody said to you, "This is so unfair, ungracious, and unforgiving to attack people who've brought so many people to Jesus." And I'm thinking, like, WTF? Like, WT actual F? You know? How have you been able to develop um, like internal mental muscles? emotional muscles to respond with the fruit of the spirit or is it like is it do you have to relearn it every time something like that happens no i well i don't know like i'm pretty uh sad i think i'm filled with grief and lament more than anger mm. yeah I don't know why. yeah i heard you on another interview and you referred there was an experience that you had uh you were speaking at a college uh, and somebody asked a very um, a hard question. He, it turned out that he was misunderstood and asking a question a different way. But it sounded like he was, you know, hitting you with a hardball, right? Um, and then you described the, uh, the the bathroom coalition or something like that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I was at a, a college, and he sometimes I've been at colleges like I was at Belmont in Nashville with Bob Fu, the Chinese political dissident. And when I was walking out, someone sort of accosted me and sort of yelling at me, you know, F you, F your husband, you're what's wrong with America. He did not pause to tell me if he were, if he was conservative or liberal, I didn't know. It could go either way, but it looks like he had attacked me physically. It was right in front of a camera and his, he was huge. And so I was apprehensive about all of it. Um, and so when I went to this college, I was like, okay, I, I want to do a favor to this local college. And I went and I was nervous about the people in the audience and I did not want to talk about my abuse. And so I told them, I just had to allude to it for the purposes of the story that I was telling. And then afterwards, this guy gets up and he's like, so you talk a lot about forgiveness, but have you forgiven your pedophile who abused you? And I was just like, what? Like he was very aggressive, but as you said, I misunderstood him. But in the meantime, all these women stood up. They were like, absolutely not. And they ran to the bathroom and I ran to the bathroom. I ran off stage. I was crying. Um, and we later went to lunch and we talked about it. And I think if you could see, like, there's a lot of abuse victims walking around and you just never know it. Um, but lately because of my work, I've begun to know it because they keep telling me and to sharing their sacred stories with me. And I feel very honored. Mm. Yeah. You know, you, you do talk a lot about how we, how we get through this moment that we're in where the opposite, like the anti-fruit of the spirit is, is celebrated like brazenly, just like, as if they're, they're the virtues, you know, when we think about as, as scripture, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Like we, it, we're almost brazenly encouraged to boast and do all these things and emulate you know, a lot of our friends from church are emulating the, you know, Trump or what have you. Um, but you talk about about love, about loving your neighbor, um, about seeing someone as a human being. Uh, and I've really appreciated that. So that's why I wanted to ask you to share that. So I mentioned it, how you and David met. Um, but it was especially poignant because all of what was going on in your life at that time. So could mm -hmm. you share with folks uh, how, well, I guess it wasn't technically the first time because you talked to him on the phone. Um, but could you yeah. share folks how that that's such a sweet story? Yeah. So the way I met David French was I was um in Paris, Tennessee, rural Tennessee, 
And my parents wanted to force me to go to a Church of Christ college in Nashville called Lipscomb. And I was not very enthusiastic about it. So I lied to all the admissions people who called me repeatedly to gauge my interest. I told them I wanted to go to vet school, medical school, law school, because no, but I can't go to Lipscomb because you can't get into these good postgraduate um, degree, you know, places from Lipscomb. I was just being arrogant. I was being a jerk. On that last one, the guy said, oh, you want to go to law school? Is Harvard good enough for you? My friend David is there. I'll have him call you to ask to answer any questions. <laughs> that you." And so I didn't know how to spell Harvard. I did not have any inclination to go to law school. I was just wanting to pick something that sounded fancy, and I was just yeah. being antagonistic. And so a week later, he calls me, and we have the best conversation Um, He was amazing. He did mention that he was engaged to someone else, um, but that was not a big deal because he was six years older than me. So it's like it wasn't like that was a a possibility. But for some reason, it sort of pricked my spirit because I liked him so much. I did go to that college. I did not love it. So one day after three years at that college, we were walking by each other and I recognized him because there was pictures of him in the student government office. And I said, are you David French? And I reintroduced myself and I said, I told you I wouldn't like it here and I hate it. And I was just so like acrimonious and (laughs) resentful, but for some reason he didn't care. And he asked me out, we talked for four hours on that sidewalk. And I remember at the end of that conversation, I I told people, I was like, I will never tired of never tire of talking to this person. He's amazing. And they laughed and they're like, young love, you don't understand marriage, whatever. And we're 28 years into it. And I was right. He's great. We, it's just (laughs) the best decision I've ever made in my life. That is awesome. Uh, Yeah, that's so one of the surprising things, because I I read the after part, your book that you co-wrote with, uh, with Curtis. um, And one of the surprising things reading about that story, David self-describes as a competent uh, or how do you say com- combatant. Yeah, combatant? Yeah, yeah. So the yeah, David you described does not sound like a combatant. <laughs> he's not. He's not. Um, he's not now because Corey, there is a such a thing as sanctification. But <laughs> I, will, I will tell you this: you might not know that David French played in the NBA. <laughs> Wait, no. The Nash Nashville Bar Association oh. basketball, <laughs> and uh, he. This is not a hyperbole. He literally threw a ball at his senior partner because I think he missed a foul shot or something like, no, he had a lane violation during a foul shot. And so that was David then, but he's changed a ton. He is so, so kind. I am much more rhetorically pugilistic than he is. Um, And in just in our interpersonal uh, relationships with people, I'm much more like feisty and he's so kind. He's always kind. He always repays evil he repays good for evil. Yes, that's the right the order. He's yeah. kind. You can't anger him. I mean, he's just great. Yeah. yeah. Well, so one of the things I really enjoyed about the book and about you, it's just so endearing, is that um, it's it, so from afar, one just assumes, maybe it's just me, but one just assumes that life must be a bed of roses, you know, uh, best-selling author and David's writing for the Atlantic and the New York Times and, you know, help the dispatch or, uh, yeah, the dispatch and just all these awesome things. But life isn't a bed of roses, like you're human beings and you were uh, very candid. Obviously, y'all have been through a lot of trials, but like 
Um, in terms of your marriage, you had you had candor and and are much more relatable. One of my favorite lines in the book is um, in the whole book is I got in the car, we had spaghetti. <laughs> Can, can you fill some 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 of the gaps in for folks so they know what I'm talking about? Well, yeah. So Dave, the man I married um, was very patriotic and courageous and wonderful and, you know, pure hearted. And after 9-11, he decided to join the army. Uh, we had two kids at the time and he was deployed for a year. When he came back, I'd gotten used to doing things on my own. And he'd gotten used to having a whole squadron of people who did exactly what he wanted, exactly when he wanted it. And so after a year of being apart, which was grievous and horrible, he'd been through some major trauma. He saw genocide. He saw horrific things. So he was grieving. He was traumatized and he was home. And one night he asked me what we were having for dinner. And I hesitated because I wasn't sure. And he got I can't exactly remember, but he was like angry at me and I was angry at him and we fought and we fought. We, the kids still call it the kick the bowl incident because for some reason there was a bowl outside, like the dogs were playing with it or something like a plastic bowl. And I think, I don't know if I kicked it or he kicked it. It was like so embarrassing. We never act like that. But um, it was just a a, dif a difficult time because I realized that the, that he was not the man I married. And he would never be that man again. But the goodness of God is that he is better. He was, that was the process of him becoming the man God intended him to be. And so it was a painful process, but he is so different than he was when we got married. And he was awesome when we got married. Uh, but it's just beautiful to see someone sort of following, you know, the Holy Spirit and trying to live for God in the way that he, you know, believed he needed to. Yeah. Yeah. So I got in the car. We had spaghetti. <laughs> that was awesome. Well, so throughout the whole book, I, I kept wondering, how is her faith? You know, there are so many ways and, and so many reasons. I, I felt like the church failed you or fr friends from church failed you. Pastors, obviously, um, from church conspired just to really wreck you. Um, there was one moment, though, that was just very different as you described it that rundown church you know me being a new yorker i had an affinity for your chapter you know that that time in new york so that yeah. rundown church near times square i guess um i got chills as you described it so i was curious though how has your faith been through all these ups and downs and challenges and people being awful and all I, vac I vacillate the the worst thing for my faith I'm not sure if this is true, but I think it probably is, um, has been my investigation into Canacuck Camps, which is a Christian institution. Not that I'd ever heard of Canacuck in my life. What bothered me was the gigantic yawn that the evangelical church had after I dropped all of this information in their laps. It was like, it. you hear people talk about pedophile rings in the White House. I proved all this stuff about actual pedophiles. And they're like, yeah, well, we don't care about that because they're not willing to criticize people in their own tribe. You see this in 1998 when everybody said that character counted in presidential leaders. And, you know, that was Bill Clinton, of course. And now with our own tribe, we're like, you know, we're not really trying to elect a Boy Scout, are we? Um, so I am currently, I don't know if I'm currently at I think I'm at a pretty low point. I'm hanging on to Christianity by my fingernails. 
Um, but I feel like I have a vice grip on God and vice versa. Um, and that's a pretty good place to be. I think it some sort of disillusionment is probably appropriate after, you know, since we're dealing with human institutions. But it's a shame that um, that the current state of the church is so inhospitable uh, to like the advancement of, I don't know, truth, protection of children, that kind of stuff. I just don't know how you can uh, recover from that. I don't I I don't know how to change what I've seen. I will never be the same again after seeing what happened at Canicott camps and the church's sluggish, non-existent response to it. Yeah. I'll never be the same. I can't be. Um, um, so I, I go through the Bible, I'm not going to say every year, but I just start in Genesis 1, I read through Revelation 22, and I start all over again, uh, ever since I became a Christian 20-something years ago. I'm in the histories now, <clears throat> and I'm reminded of the bigger story, uh, that what the church is going through now, or the people of God, if you want to think of it more broadly, are going through now, it's not anything new, you know, the, the, throughout the history of Israel, um, the, those idols kept on going up, <laughs> you know, God kept on having to reprimand and, you know, and even in the, you know, uh, when you get into the new books in the new Testament, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like Jesus showed up and everybody had it figured out, right. <laughs> you know? So redefining the people of God around the person of Jesus. Um, it wasn't like, Oh, Mashiach came and now we got it all figured out. Like, no, this is, this is not a new story. This is not a new story. So there's a lot to talk about. Um, there but you're one of the things that really was gripping was uh, i think of them it, i think of them as or maybe folks who aren't religious might think of them as moments of serendipity um but you described it later on as getting holy ghosted uh <laughs> so or one of my other favorite lines in the book now god was just showing off you know <laughs> yeah 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 so that, well now, we used to go to an assembly of god church so i have to represent <laughs> so yeah some of those like when your daughter who had you it took you two and a half years to meet like the day that she was born um or hearing i'm actually if i talk more i'm just going to give it away but like oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to give away the whole book, but people got them. It's not available yet. I feel special <laughs> for having been able to read it. Um, how, how might you describe that type of belief, like that sense of wonder to someone who doesn't share your beliefs? I I don't quite understand the question. So what do you mean, this sense of wonder? Um, so being being wholly ghosted, like um, that, that, oh. that part of your belief. Like if, if somebody, if you're, somebody you're talking to isn't a Christian or maybe is agnostic, um, not somebody who's combative or whatever, like, you know, challenging you, but just a friend of yours that you're talking to. Like, oh, like, um, uh, Kathy. Kathy Gatenberg. Yeah. Yeah. How many you describe that feeling to Kathy? You know, probably very similarly as I did in the book, because in fact, yesterday I was talking to someone, um, uh, yeah. And we were talking cause she's not a believer and she's like, I wish I was, I'm not. And, and she had read my book on a plane from Sweden to New York. And, and, you know, I was like, she was like, I just don't believe. And I was like, I just can't not, you know, like God showed up. I, and, and, and she was like, it's so beautiful. You know, your faith is so strong and that caused this and this and this. And I was like, that is not, that is, uh, that's not true. My, I, God showed up when I had zero faith. 
I mean, in like, you know, there's just so many instances where I was skeptical, incredulous, rude. And God was like, okay, I can handle all of that, you know? So like, I'm not exactly sure. I've had so many experiences with God that are so amazing. And I feel very thankful that I have. I'm not sure exactly why I have and others haven't. It's not because I'm pure in heart or spirit or anything like that. But God has just reached out and sort of um, taken care of me in ways that are physical and obvious and miraculous and documented. And I just wanted to sort of talk about that in the book because I've been so focused, laser focused on uncovering the rot in the church. I wanted to just sort of juxtapose that to God. Right. And, and I just love doing that. I love telling the stories. I, and I'm thankful that everyone can sort of read them. You know, I took time to write out all of the things that have happened. And uh, anyway, I think it's quite beautiful. It is quite beautiful because I still, I can't shake my most irreducible beliefs uh, that there is a God uh, and then I'm not him. <laughs> you know, those are my two most irreducible beliefs. There is a God and I ain't him or her or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, it's encouraging. And and it was encouraging to read some of those stories like uh, um, David's initial reaction when he called uh, some friends from Harvard who said they'd been praying for him over his ulcerative colitis and it's done, it's over. He was first pissed at them for being so basis to say that that he'd been healed but that was one of those miraculous healings or what have you so i know um, it's so weird because everyone is like well in order to be healed you have to pray this certain prayer and everybody in the room has to agree and everyone has to have faith and and we had no faith and david had an incurable disease and he he doesn't have it you know he, he was cured of a disease that was incurable. Yeah. And you see that times a lot in your life and you're just like, okay, I'm not going, it's, it's, it's like a, it's just an unshakable sort of faith. Um, but I, yeah, so I, it, I'm sounding so like ardent in my beliefs and I, and I do feel so strongly about God and I'm so thankful for my relationship with him. And I think it's, yeah, I think maybe I'm, uh, just thankful to be able to talk about that instead of all of the disillusionment and the angst and the sadness and the grief over the state of the church. The American yeah. Church. Yeah, so for it's, sure. It's yeah. It's good. It's like taking a shower, like a spiritual shower in a way to be able to like, remember like God is good. <laughs> like So, yeah. um, so I did, I do need to ask you about, uh, how much trouble you caused as a political writer. Can, can, is that okay? <laughs> like you, you oh owned up to it. Um, I, my spiritual gift is sarcasm and acrimony. It, for some reason that is left out of first Corinthians in that list, but that's what I do. I specialized in, you know, drinking liberal tears and I had some of the most polarizing clients um, I mean, this is a confession. I'm not proud of all of this. Um, that I've changed that. This is why I changed the trajectory of my entire life and, you know, lost all my income for quite some time. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I just, I'm sarcastic. I like to make jokes. I like to have fun. I like to, uh, you know, just sort of shake it up a bit. And because of that, I, you know, my clients would ask me to go to Fox news and sit off camera and feed them lines. And so, I would also write blog posts that would be featured on, you know, national news. And, you know, I, I just caused, I wreaked a lot of havoc. Another thing that I did was, um, you know, like if I had 10 clients, 
and I wanted to talk about something, I would have all of them write about it from different perspectives. So you um, created virality. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And you could see it. Like I remember just sitting there watching the page counts go up yeah. and you up to a million or like, Oh my gosh, I've got the power and no one even knows. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but there was so much wrong with that. I was mischaracterizing people. So as you know, like what, what you have to do, you have to punch hard. And thankfully that's what I love, love, love to do. But I was convicted by God when I realized that I was loyal to my tribe more than the truth. Mm. And one of the things that political pundits do is called nut picking. Are you familiar? I was going to ask you about that. So describe, yeah, what, what is nut picking? So this was a, a tactic that I used and that other people use where in Madison, Wisconsin, there might be some clerk who did something that was anathema to conservatives and stupid, right? And I would write articles. That's how liberals are. Is this how you want Democrat, you know, if this is what will happen in America, if Democrats take charge and it's extrapolating from one random crazy person. And we have millions of people in this country and you can always find weirdos. And so you take that weirdo, you elevate them. You might write it a little worse than it was. And then you say, this is how Democrats are. This is yeah. why you need to be mean to your Democratic neighbor. And I was convicted by the Holy Spirit because I felt like I was breaking the Ten Commandments. Mm. Uh, not all of them. <laughs> but the one that was talking about not um, bearing false witness against your neighbor. Right. Now, I don't have any liberal neighbors because uh, I live in Tennessee. Not many. Um, but you get the idea. So yeah. I decided that I was not going to mischaracterize people or lie. And when I did that, I was basically unemployable. Oh, man, <laughs> that's um, that that is convicting. I mean, <laughs> it's convicting about the way we engage. But that's that's why when it, it's not just my program, there's a whole bunch of. Yeah. And Charlie's pissed about it, too. So <laughs> that's the daughter of the dog. Yeah. Charles Minkus, the third um, that. Uh, that's why we started this program because we're not doing this well. You know, we, we have um, a lot, the, the business model uh, that is scalable and duplicatable is mischaracterizing, vilifying, you know, it, th that's, that's what it is. Overgeneralizing, that's the business model. Um, I don't think Rush necessarily, Rush Limbaugh necessarily invented it, but it is a whole, um, it is a whole. So I was curious though, you're in a unique position because I'm thinking that you still identify as a conservative, right? Political conservative. You know, I, I don't use that word just because people, when you say conservative, people think Donald Trump, but basically I haven't changed. Like right. I, I've changed a little bit on certain issues um, like police brutality and, and things that I'm sort of rethinking and reconsidering. But for example, when people would say they, you know, they would confront me and say, why aren't you voting for Donald Trump? I'd say, because I'm conservative. Right. I'm too conservative to vote for this person. Or my dad was a Marine. My husband is a veteran. Um, my, And we are not a party. People should not mock prisoners of war, right? It's horrible. Like if you just focus on the way he treated John McCain. Yeah, right out of the yeah. gate. August of 2015. Yeah, absolutely. Let alone sexual, I mean, let alone all of it. But like, that's not the Republican Party that I knew. 
And so we're supposed to act like, so everyone is so ideologically malleable because 10 years ago, if you wrote down these positions that these MAGA people are, are espousing, it would be shocking. You know, like people just changed their, it was, it was like they put on a Republican Jersey and then the Repu Republican party just sort of went off the rails and they were yeah. like, yeah, we hate military heroes. They suck. You know, we're going to follow president bone spur, yeah. uh, you know, and it's like, <laughs> wait one second. Do you remember when we get teary over the national anthem and then what? It's like so weird. So I don't really feel like I've changed but um, I feel like my posture has changed. Yeah. Well, why do you think that, not that you're a psychotherapist or, you know, can analyze a whole country or even a whole church, but like, why do you think that is? Like, I've thought about, I've thought about, anyway, I, I can tell you what I think about it, but I'm curious why you think that is. Why Why do folks embrace like anti-morality? It's, it's not just amorality, it's like anti-morality. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> I mean, like the guy literally can, can, he said that he, I mean, I, it is so baffling. And also it's not like he's that compelling of a person. Right. Right. I mean, he's a strange human being and we were a, we were just completely willing to toss out our, okay, this will, let me give you a story. So Back in the day, David and I had this group called Evangelicals for Met, and we would travel around and talk to famous evangelicals about whether or not they could support Governor Romney, Mitt Romney, who's oh, yeah, had, yeah, it, 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 Senator Romney, um, for president of the United States. And they would talk and they would talk and they would say, We're so sorry, we have deeply held biblical beliefs, we cannot support a Mormon. Okay, we prayed, we read the Bible, we had arguments from scripture. Five minutes later, after these people were revealed to have affairs and other horrible things, five minutes later, they're saying, you know what? In spite, no, they didn't say in spite of my deeply held biblical beliefs. They said, because of my deeply held biblical beliefs, this is our guy. And you're just like, oh, this you're just a, you're just lying. Like we spent all of that time trying to rhetorically, you know, convince you that it was okay to vote for a Mormon because of your deeply held biblical beliefs. And you don't have those. You are politically malleable. You just wanted somebody who was a pugilist. Uh, and, you know, and they would say, oh, we don't want a Boy Scout. Okay. What's wrong with Boy Scouts? I thought we were like, it, it's bizarre, but that's like, the thing is like, that you see, you saw it happen and it was so fast and people just went along with it. It was like the emperor has no clothes. And there were not that many people who were like, hey guys, absolutely not. But those people who did say that were excoriated. Yeah. And so why would you want to? You just go along with your tribe. You go along with your neighbors. You go along with the people at church because it's like every Sunday school lesson that you've ever heard, which is in high school, which is, you know, to, if someone's passing around a red solo cup, don't drink it, but man, we're putting those red hats on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you're onto something there. And the best that I can make of it is that it's basically an aversion, like a, a, a malice that is the, the, like, it's almost like everybody's looking at their compass and the compass is who do we hate? Like who's yeah. our enemy? So everything kind of 
um, everything kind of falls into line based on that, based on that compass. Right. The law of group polarization, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I, I've been um, coming to the conclusion about. Um, the book is, the book is just fantastic. Uh, there are so many chapters. I could do this for like literally, like I have 11 pages of notes and I'm still on page one, by the oh, way. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> so there's so many different chapters. I'm sure there's a lot that we haven't covered. Um, like I definitely wanted to ask you what it's like to be married to David Lee Roth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky, right? Um, mm. So I want to ask you, I usually ask this question. It's called the TPNR question, but I have okay. an appendix to it. Okay. So the TPNR question is, what do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with, and perhaps even to nurture relationships with people across our differences, which means people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? Now, the way I want you to answer this question is somebody that we mentioned before is tell me about Kathy Kattenberg. When I wrote my 2016 Washington Post article about being abused in the church, I was shocked at the church's reaction. Not the churches necessarily, but people, conservative pundits. Uh, some people on from our tribe did not like that I was talking about my sexual abuse as it applied to my uh, political position on Donald Trump. They said I was using my own personal trauma to advance nefarious goals. I don't know. It was weird, whatever. Um, but I just got sick of conservative responses to my Washington Post piece. And so I decided I'm just going to like and follow anyone who's kind to me on Twitter. I followed someone named Kathy Kattenberg. I did not even know if she's a real person. She was nice to me once. She had an icon that says, I stand with immigrants. The next time I logged on for the next year, Kathy would just put David French on a skillet, no matter what the topic was, immigration, abortion, you name it, you name it. I'm sorry about my dogs. No, you're fine. It's it's all part of the fun. You want me to shut the door? Can you hear that? You no, hear I can't. That? Okay. Even okay. if we did, it's it's all good. Okay. Okay. So for the next like year or two years, every time I logged on, I would see Kathy and she was so sarcastic and mean to David, mischaracterized him. He would write something that was pro-life. She would say, I've had four abortions. So how dare you tell me what to do with my body? All of this. And Kathy was mean. And one day she posted on Twitter that she couldn't get groceries. And she was like, I'll never eat again. This is so horrible. It was during COVID. And I have this vow that I if I see someone who has a physical need or is in some sort of duress and I can help, I try to help, which has landed me in some crazy situations, including recently in LaGuardia's restroom, uh, trying to talk to a drunken passenger about her inherent dignity and worth. But anyway, so Kathy was so, so, so mean, but I also have this thing that I do, which is try to help if I can. And I really didn't want to because she was so rude. And so I messaged her and I was like, hi, this is Nancy French. I'm David French's wife. I see, are you, are you food insecure? And she goes, I think we need to talk on the phone. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have such an aversion. I would rather get unnecessary dental surgery than talk, <laughs> especially to someone who might be recording me. I mean, she hated David. Yeah. So we get on the phone. She has this New York accent and I sound like I fell off a turn turnip truck and she was like, I am disabled. 
and I live by myself and I can't leave my apartment and I rely on the food services, uh, delivery services to eat and they're overwhelmed because of COVID and I haven't eaten anything but pancake mix for two and a half weeks. And I was like, oh my gosh, I will help you. Let's do this. And so I called all the Presbyterian churches, the PCA churches, because that's where I went. I called all the synagogues because that's where Kathy went. And we could not get help. We could not get groceries. I placed three different orders in three different places and the the food did not come. And so in exasperation one day on the phone, because we talked every day because I was like, okay, the chimichangas, you want seven of those. Okay. Um, Which is very intimate to talk to someone about this. And um, I said, Kathy, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get you food. And I was like, I think the only thing we have to do is pray. And she goes, okay, we'll pray. Oh, wow. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I do not, this might have been the last time that I prayed with another human being out loud was with Kathy Cadenberg. Uh, Cause I was like, Kathy, I don't want to pray. I don't know how to pray with a Jew. I don't want to, you know, insult you accidentally. I don't know the words you use. And And she was like, just pray, whatever. And so I prayed out loud with Kathy Kattenberg and I was so uncomfortable because I hate doing that. And, but all three loads of groceries showed up. So she had 27 bananas and six pounds of beef and all of those chimichangas showed up. And Kathy and I became friends. I love Kathy Kattenberg. (laughs) We have been friends for years now. And I just, I think she's amazing. She's smart. She's beautiful. She's just lovely. And um, we've kept up this relationship. David and I actually went to see her in New York. And when I was at the mall doing my storytelling, you know, she came. And anyway, I just, I love her. And she came because I wanted her to be there. So she's, you know, as I mentioned, disabled and not able to leave the house. And so when I realized I was going to be performing at Lincoln Center, I called her and I was like, can you come yeah. hear me at Lincoln Center? And she was like, no, I'm disabled and I can't leave the house. Remember, that was me, you know, the person who couldn't eat. <laughs> and, uh, but how bad is it? Like, if I sent a car, could could you just sit down? And and to her credit, she came and my small group sent like all these cool clothes. It was like Cinderella or whatever. And she came and we had so much fun. But it was so funny because I was backstage because I was telling a story. So David French, her former enemy. Yeah. Had to get her out of the car and he took her in. It was just so sweet. And I just love Kathy so much. And I think that experience has um, really changed me because I realized that all of those um, acrimonious tr- tweets were coming from a place of, you know, sort of loneliness. And, you know, she was trying to get attention. And um, anyway, but she and David love each other now. And, um, it's, it, it is the biggest 180 that I've ever seen in my life. Now, Kathy, um, loves her some liberalism. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and she's still very feisty, um, online, but you know, I, I don't care what people think. I honestly, like, I don't know. This sounds, I know I'm married to David French and I should care. I do not care. Like I meet someone and they're espousing, uh, a political belief that I don't, believe in, I don't care. Like who cares what somebody believes about this topic? Unless it's, you know, like in Franklin, there was some Nazi sympathizing candidates, you know, like at some point you have to actually stand up and, you know, fight anti-Semitism and racism and all that kind of stuff. But you talk to somebody and they believe X, Y, or Z about the second amendment. And I'm just like, 
Anyway, did you see Survivor last night? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's Yuval Levin. He, the way he puts it is sometimes you just got to get to the point where you say, I really strongly disagree with you. Now pass the gravy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I have to confess something. When I first, I, I read a, maybe the first paragraph of that story from The After Party, the, the book that you wrote with, uh, with Curtis, um, which by the way, uh, again, just to remind folks, we shared the Curtis conversation a couple weeks ago. It's a great program. Um, I've been talking to a couple pastors about it already, uh, but I have my confession is that I just read the first part of that story and I looked her up. I didn't read the rest of the story. So I was looking up Kathy Kattenberg or whatever her handle is on Twitter, ready to like, you know, you know, put my dukes up for you. You know, like I felt like, you know, I needed to fight yeah. for you. Like, but that makes me part of the problem. You know, that makes me part of the problem. Yeah, well, uh, that is, yeah, that is interesting. It, I, I just wanted to say, I probably shouldn't, but Kathy's already been banned from threads. Oh, <laughs> that's an accomplishment. That is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> I, I think it was unfair. I, I do. I actually, okay. saw, but anyway, I love her, but she's so wonderful. And that's, that's what your, your show is about. It's like, you can have someone like Kathy who has deeply held biblical, biblical, deeply held political beliefs. Yeah. And she's Jewish, you know? And so you've got me, I'm this even, well, I'm this Christian in the South, you know, yeah. and I have deep political beliefs and I just cherish her. She's blessed my life so much. And it's because we have a relationship. It's because we had a, you know, like I reached out to her. She asked me, now, I've been sort of mean to David online. Why are you helping me? <laughs> and I was like, Kathy, it's because of Jesus, I guess. I don't know. Like, this is not because I want to. I just, you know, this. I'm a Christian. This is what you do. And how many chimichangas do you want? You know, like, it, <laughs> it, this was not like a pure hearted, like, reach out. Um, but it was so funny because she gives as good as she gets. And she's just really wonderful. And I, I would not have known her. If I decided that I couldn't be friends with someone who, you know, the spouse believes she did. Yeah. Well, I do think that regardless of whether you persuade each other to vote differently or believe differently or do anything differently other than just be yourselves, I do think that the core problem, the core disease that's infecting us as a, as a culture is what I've become, what I've begun thinking of as the perniciousness of them. You know, right. to basically dehumanize um, whole populations of people um, and just think of them as a them, as an other, and not on a human level. But you right. getting to know Kathy and Kathy getting to know you, that's just one little drop, you know? Right. That's just one little drop to um, rehumanize or remember somebody. So um, it was a very encouraging story, convicting story all over again. No matter how much I do this work, I find myself being part of the problem. So it was really encouraging. Um, do you have any questions for me? Yes. So oh. I, you know, I was talking about Kathy being a, a, a Jew. Yeah. How has it been for you with all of the political turmoil lately? Um, I know that, you know, I think you're a Jew who became a Christian, but you're still Jewish and yeah. you have all this have you been targeted or do you feel harassed or do you feel how's it going um thank you for asking it has been um it has been tough uh so before i forget you, you i mentioned this in one of our emails uh but you are officially and your family's officially invited if we're ever in the same place at the same time to the nathan Seder, uh which is the oh, passover yeah. dinner um, yeah we're doing that yeah 
Uh, so it's fun, especially if my mother, uh, who's also a New York Jew, is there. Uh, you'll feel like you're in an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. So <laughs> we need to do this. We need to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it it there have been moments that have been harder than others. Um, the the interaction that comes to mind is um, right after October seventh. Um, one of my buddies who is a big Trump supporter reached out to me um, and said, how are you doing with all this? And I thought he was genuinely asking, how are you doing with all this? Um, what I was dismayed to learn was that he was using it as a opportunity to take a, you know, do a touchdown dance, like just to, you know, take a victory lap, like, hey, if Trump was still in office, this never would have happened. Um, <sighs> and he went further on to say, you know, and, and how does it feel to essentially be an anti-Semite? You know, that, that uh, you know, if you're not for Trump, you're essentially with Ilhan Omar. And how does that feel? I'm like, dude. So that, that was one of those moments where it was a pass the gravy moment. Um, I, I, I still haven't been able to circle back around with him to talk with him, which grieves me um, because. Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, and and there have been a few moments like that, like that, like. In a way, like, so there was a, there was a, a um, I think of it as a mourner's cottage, but like there was a bunch of Jewish people and, and uh, supporters and friends that got together at uh, the city, city hall the Wednesday after October 7th, just to like grieve and to mourn and be together. Um, and there were several uh, tr pickup trucks filled with people with Palestinian flags yelling the, you know, from the river to the sea. Not that that's easy to deal with, but it's simpler to deal with. I, right. I like I know where to put that, but this right. is my this is my buddy. We've talked right. endlessly about politics. He knows my nuanced views. He knows that I'm a, you know, uh, he know he knows that he he should know me better than that. He should know what like how I feel about certain issues. He should know what my fiscal policy is like. What my you know where who I gravitate more towards uh, in terms of foreign foreign policy. At the very least, he should know that the work of David Brooks and David French and I'm going to name a bunch of David David from like they like that that's that's where I identify. So to think that because I'm a Pete Weiner fan and you know and a David French fan that I'm somehow I might as well just be Ilhan Omar and an anti-semite like that's oh, the stuff that's hard for me to 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 reckon with not to mention the fact that so I do have family in Israel and, and I've talked about this on the show but that day um we uh fortunately all the kids so my direct cousins that are my age um you know Jonathan was doing um uh, street watch like uh you know, uh, community watch, but their kids, uh, I think are there eight of them, nine of them, nine of them are all between like 18 and 30. So they're all getting called up to the IDF. Um, you know, and fortunately they were all accounted for, but Laura, my, the one who's closest to my age, Laura, who passed away actually about 10 years ago, her nephew was unaccounted for. And it turns out tragically, he died on October 7th. Uh, but that's, that's that's the mindset like that's what we were dealing with and my buddy comes and wants to do like hey how do you like it now you know so that was um sorry a longer answer to your question but that that's it's horrible i'm so sorry i can't even imagine i was playing pickleball this morning with a new york jew and because i saw her little star of david and uh anyway i asked her the same question and anyway i just i just love to hear people's experiences because i know this is a tough time yeah 
Yeah. Um, but listen, I, I, I can't shake, you know, the whole Jesus thing. I like the coherence and consistency of the continuation of that story. Like I can't shake, I can't shake the resurrection, you know? Um, so that's, it's kind of like what you described before, like hanging on by my fingernails, uh, no matter how many of these types of interactions I've had, like with this guy or, you know, other interactions I've had in the church. Um, you know, I can't shake what I believe in who Yeshua ben Yosef was, who Rabbi Yeshua was um, and is. So um, I do have, well, I could go, I could do this for a lot longer, but I know that we need to wrap it up at yes, some point. Yes, it's been so fun talking to you. This yeah. is great. Thank you for being interested in my book and for oh. having so much enthusiasm, uh, enthusiasm for it and not mentioning that I lied to Mitt Romney at some point in the book. And <laughs> About skiing? Yeah, yeah. We won't even go there, but I do appreciate it. It's been that was so such a fun. sweet story. So definitely when it comes out, y'all got to get the book Ghosted. But tell folks how people can follow you, find more info about Ghosted, uh, the after party, all the great work that you're doing. Yes. Yeah, so nancyfrench.com is my writer's uh, website. On uh, When the book debuts, I'm also going to have a separate connected website that's all art. So I've done one painting per chapter to depict the chapter. And oh, wow. it, that's going to be available for sale, not only the originals, but the print. So that's very exciting. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm Nancy A. French. I don't even know what I'm on at threads. Just let me up. I will. Me I will. I'll put yeah, some links in the show notes and stuff. Yeah, I do that. And then the after party um, is, I think it's the afterparty.org in that book. So Ghosted, my memoir is coming out April 16th. And one week later, the after party is coming out. And so we're both, we're excited about both of those. Um, and the after party will give you a lot of tips on how to, you know, do the things that Corey is talking about, but, um, yes, but my book comes out first. And so give priority to my awesome book <laughs> to, find out, to find all of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, is there anything important? Uh, we covered a lot today, but is there anything important that you want to add that, that we haven't covered yet? No, I don't think so. Okay. This has been so much fun. I'm so excited to be able to talk to someone who's read my book. It's an author's dream. Oh, it's it was really a treat. It was such a treat. I um, it made my flight from D.C. back home uh, go so quickly. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, that's so I just nice. I spent the whole time reading it. But I've been a fan of your work. So um, I'd love to next time we talk. I'd love to talk more about your painting and how you learned when that started and how you learned. But um, I just really enjoyed it. I'm so grateful to you for coming in. And um, I know this is, uh, you know, this, it's a heavy lift for you. You have some physical challenges that you're, so I, I'm especially appreciative. So thank oh, you. Oh, so well, that's wonderful. Well, you got me dressed and made up and hair. So that's a good accomplishment for the day. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it. I'm gonna go that's lay great. down now. We All did right. it, we did it. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, uh, remember to follow, rate, and review. Uh, and tell a friend about TPNR. Tell a friend about Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. We're easy to recommend and find. It's politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us. Uh, or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's C-O-R-E-Y and S as in Sam. Nathan, uh, at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week.